Awesome. Um, so we've got two um, pieces of scripture that we will be diving into today. The first is from 1 John uh, chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And our second passage is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, again starting at verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Please welcome Alex as he brings us the message today. Hey, church family, how are we doing? Great to be back. Hey, Kath and I just got back from holidays, and uh, you'll see a little photo of us hiking on the screen. Uh, we just had the most amazing time. That's not us, that's Kath. But we just had the most, just if you were unsure, right? We just had the most amazing time. And I thought it's important actually to make note of that because, you know, we're away. And your hope is the church would be, it wasn't a bad holiday, right? And um, so we're just really grateful. Thanks for your prayers. Thanks for your love. And just thanks for the warm welcome that we've been given as we've come back and stepped back into the rhythm of family life here in New Life Brisbane. Thanks so much. It was a really awesome time. Um, before I jump into today, I just have a little update on elders. Um, a few weeks ago, before I went away, we commissioned a process by which we were seeking our fourth elder, our second female elder, and we just wanted to let you know we've extended the window by which you can nominate uh, people for that. And I just want to be fully transparent. Upon returning, we realized there was no people nominated as yet, um, but it's the real heart and discerning of the eldership currently that we do have our fourth elder in our midst. We promised last year that we'd find our fourth elder, our second female elder, and it's our heart and discernment that we would indeed have that person already. And so if you've got someone on your heart, feel free to talk to them about, them, uh, about that prospect. Um, if you have questions about eldership, feel free to come and ask me or one of the current elders. Um, but can I just invite you to pray? Pray that we'd find our fourth elder. Um, the elders right now are doing an incredible job. I feel incredibly well encouraged alongside them, but their heart is just to shepherd and love and serve and see New Life Brisbane become all that it could be. And so we want to grow as an eldership because this church is growing. And so pray and nominate, and we'll take that process forward as and when that happens. When we were overseas, um, we, as I said, we did a bit of hiking, and one of the goals we had was to see sort of as much... Um, wildlife as we... Why is everyone laughing? Is that a surprise to people? Goodness me. Wow. Yeah, not overseas. Wow. Sorry, Tasmanians. Anyone from Tasmania here? Okay. (laughs) There it is. All right. (laughs) Oh, man. Am I going to preach now? How do I recover after that? Wow. Um, we've, um, We've been going through a sermon series called Light and Love as a church. And 
And the sort of idea behind this series, well, the text behind this series is the book of 1 John, a letter that the elder wrote. He was an apostle. He was a disciple of Jesus, had face-to-face encounter, was an eyewitness of the person of Jesus himself. And he has these two big ideas he wants to communicate. God is light and God is love. They sound fluffy, but they're pretty rigorous. In fact, I reckon if you were to try and summarize the Christian story with two words, these would be pretty good, actually. God is light And God is love. And we sort of discovered in the first half of the book that because God's light, Christians shouldn't walk in darkness and they shouldn't conceal their brokenness. You sort of get this sense that God, because he's light, he illuminates the brokenness in each of our hearts and he illuminates the way that each of us are to follow in life after him. He's light because of which we shouldn't walk in darkness, we shouldn't conceal our own brokenness. In fact, you might even say, right, like, the more you come into contact with the fact that God is light, if you're a Christian just the less likely you are to make extravagant claims about who you are as a human. You know what I mean? Like, we sort of hide our brokenness. We want to deny it and say it's not true. We're actually not as sinful or broken as the Christian story would have us believe and explain. But actually, the closer you come to the God who is holy, who is light, who is beauty undefined, you start to realize you can't make extravagant claims about yourself. It's like, this is just who I am. But here's the other fact. Here's the other side of the coin. Sure, God's light. And that means, sure, our brokenness is revealed, but God's also love. So you better believe that that means nothing for his love for you. That in the Christian story, we'd say we're two things all at the same time. We're beautiful because of God's love for us, but we're also broken because God's lit up that which is in our hearts and we know it to be true, the base level of ourselves. God is light, God is loved. We're broken and we're beautiful. This is the Christian story. So we've been journeying through this letter. And today, we're unpacking a text which, if you actually read the text behind as Jeremy was reading it out, um, it's a bit confusing, actually. It sort of talks about false teaching and prophecy, and you hear this language and you think, man, are we about to jump into like a Harry Potter sort of expose, you know? Um, Yes, that's what's happening this afternoon. But you read it and you're like, it's a bit confusing. And so I wanted to be really upfront about what John's big idea is. Um, And John's big idea this afternoon from the text that we read is this, that we need to recognize God's voice. Like it is super important as a Christian to recognize God's voice. It is imperative for the life of a Christian to recognize God's voice. You can't get around the Christian life without listening and responding and obeying God's voice. When we're in Tasmania... One of our goals was to see penguins and wombats. We didn't see penguins, so we'll just have to have another holiday sometime soon. But we did see wombats. And you'll see a little photo behind me here. (laughs) Now, I thought wombats were like glorified possums, you know? I thought they were like overweight rats. (laughs) They're not. They're like horizontal koalas. You see them? (laughs) It goes one, look, you see them? Two, I want to hug it. That's all that happens inside you. You're like, I see it, I want to hug it. And, but we're on this walk, we're doing Cradle Mountain, not the longer hike, which, hey, side note here, I want to do a long hike with some guys in the church. And so just going to flag, socialize that concept. Imagine a long hike around Cradle Mountain, four days, 65 Ks, just putting it out there. People are in, a couple of hands are up, wonderful. That might happen. Might happen. Make it happen. Um, so we're walking around and we did sort of like a, I can't remember how many Ks it was, but it was wonderful. 
and the track's beautiful. You have these wonderful vistas every time you turn a corner. The track's well-maintained, well-signed, and the guide was telling us before we jumped on the track, they were like, hey, um, expect to see wombats, particularly at this area. And so we walk, and all day we're walking, and I'm like, man, where are the wombats? And we're, you know, traversing, going on and on, and then we go past this place called the Wombat Pool, and we're like, surely the wombats are at the pool. Maybe it's too cold, I don't know. We go past the wombat pool, they're not there. Okay, <laughs> got to keep looking. Couldn't find the wombats until we turn this corner, and I see this guy, Cecil I'm going to call him, he was just scurrying along the boardwalk, and Kath and I spent a good half an hour just sitting there, taking photos. I got like this up close of him. But here's the thing, we turned the corner after that, and there was tons of wombats, so it was kind of like the reward for the end of our walk, you know, hard day's journey, there's the wombats, well done Alex and Kath. <laughs> but I realised, you know, we didn't see wombats immediately, but it's not because they weren't there. We just had to recognize them, because you, you're walking along, you're walking along, and you see all these little tufts of grass, and they sort of look like the backside of a wombat, you know? Not them. But, if you're from afar, once you know what a wombat looks like, you can see all these little tufts of grass on the mountainside, and you're like, actually, that's a wombat. I don't know if you've experienced this, it's actually a real thing. And so the point is, there was wombats there, but we didn't see them immediately, because we didn't know how to recognize them. Um, has anyone heard of what we might call like a guy's look at something? Yeah? Married couples in the room? Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Um, guys do this all the time. We're looking for something and we go to the cupboard to get the, I don't know, the cheese. Apparently it's long life cheese because it's in the cupboard. <laughs> and we get the cheese. We don't get the cheese. We go back to our partner and we say, oh, it wasn't there. And the partner's like, do you have a guy look? Yes, I did. Thank you very much. We had a guy look. We forgot to recognize something. And look, if I was to ask you, do you recognize the voice of God in your life? Some people would say, oh, I don't, I don't recognize it, but it could be that God's not speaking. But actually, you journey through the story of the Bible, you look at the commands of the New Testament, you understand what we might call prophecy in the narrative arc of the scriptures, and you'd say this, no, it's not that God's not speaking, it's that we need to learn to recognize it. We need to learn to recognize the voice of God in our lives. And this is John's argument. John's argument, his big idea is that we need to learn to recognize God's voice and that more importantly, we get to learn to recognize God's voice. Now, it's a bit different when John writes because he's writing into a context. And let me unpack that context and then walk through what sort of, I think God's put on my heart for us to walk through as a church this afternoon after that. John's writing into a context. John the Elder um, He's sort of shepherding these churches in Ephesus for a while. He comes to know them. The sort of little house churches dotted around Ephesus. It's probably towards the back end of the first century. So these churches were started most likely by Paul and his companions and co-workers early um, towards the back end of the first half of the first century. Wow, that's a mouthful. Could have said it better, didn't. And Paul plants these churches. They get, they get sprouted. They're living their life. They're doing their thing. They're worshiping the king. And along their journey people who call themselves Christians find themselves in their midst, but they start making different claims about God. We call them theological innovators, or what John says in this passage, false prophets, false teachers. People claiming the name Christian, but putting a different story for it about who Jesus is, who God is, and what truth is. And so John writes, and he says, look, you need to know the voice of God, and you need to know how to discern things so that when someone comes claiming something about God, you know whether it's true or whether it's false. In other words, his big idea is this, we need to learn to recognize God's voice because in his context, there's something negative we need to denounce. 
And heresy in the first few centuries of the church was a huge thing. We sang just before I believe, which is so fitting. Because I believe is based on an early creed which was written in response to a number of heresies that cropped up claiming different things about God in contrast to what we'd say is the true apostolic message from the apostles and what the gospel reveals about Jesus. Heresy was a big deal in the early church. On Wednesday night, we had a session with our Catalyst cohort and we talked about the Trinity. And you've got to understand, we didn't spend most of our time talking about what the Trinity is. We actually spent a lot of our time talking about what the Trinity isn't, right? Because there's so many heresies that have cropped up over the years trying to discern and decide what the Trinity is. It was a big deal in the first few centuries of the church. Claims about God, all in the name of Jesus. And John writes to protect their minds, to protect their intellect, to help them test. He writes this, John, 1 John 4, verse 1. Dear friends... Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's his point. We need to discern. Um, John writes to address something negative, because there's a prevalence of claims about who God is from those who would call themselves prophets in the first century church of Ephesus. Here's the thing I felt like God put on my heart for us this afternoon. Do we have an experience of God where people are claiming that, yeah, I think God's put this on my heart, that God could be saying this to me, which requires us in the mess in the mess and the beauty of all of that to discern whether it could indeed be God. In other words, John writes into a context where there's a prevalence of prophecy and he gets them to guard against heresy. Our problem in the, in the first century modern church, sorry, 21st century modern church, is that there might not be a prevalence of prophecy and therefore we might not need to discern. And here's what God put on mine and Kath's heart just as we were away. What does the movement of the Spirit look like in our church? What does the gifts of the Spirit look like in our church? Because John would say with utmost importance that we need to recognize the voice of God, but we can't recognize that which isn't spoken in a context where there's a prevalence of people saying things about God. We can't do that. But the story of the Bible, which I'll unpack in a moment, is the story that just says that at the heart of everything is a God who speaks. When I was living in the UK, one of my lecturers, her name was Tanya, she would call God the perpetually articulate father. Beautiful language. God is speaking. Do we recognize his voice? And have we given ourselves over to being an instrument of his communication to our church, to the world, to our friends? What does it look like to have the spirit of God working in this way in our midst. In other words, what does prophecy look like in our church? Now, when I say that word prophecy, there's probably three kind of reactions that we might have, all of which I've resonated with at some point in my own journey. Um, When I say prophecy, there's people in the room who are like way too keen when they hear that word. They hear prophecy, they're like, oh, spiritual gifts, let's go. Like, I just, like, fire tunnel, you start saying things that other people in the room might have no experience with, and, you know, you're way too keen, way too keen. It's like, where do I, who do I speak to? Where do I say something? Let's go. You start muttering tongues under your breath, you know what I'm saying? That's you, you're way too keen when you hear this. And when I, when I say prophecy, and let me just encourage that kind of person in the room, that the desire to be used by God, to outwork the, the gifts of the Spirit in the context of the gathered body, is a beautiful desire. And if you've had an experience in which that's been normalized for you, such that you expect it, that's wonderful. 
But the task of the Christian is to faithfully take that desire and shoot the arrow to land on the target of faithfulness to the Scriptures. In other words, we don't prophesy in a way that would make you know, the Scriptures redundant. We don't write a second word on top of the Word of God. We, 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 we participate with what God's Spirit is doing that's explainable by the Scriptures. If you're way too keen, awesome, but there's some things we can say, some helpful appropriateness that we can gather around that desire. The other people in the room are way too cautious. This is me, actually, just straight up. Because you hear prophecy and you think, oh man, I'm nervous about what could be said in the name of God that could hinder me, harm me, set me on a trajectory at the end of which is a life and lifestyle that I'm just not prepared for. Way, way too cautious, and there's this sense of pain and hurt. And I just want to say two things to that. that this is part of my story, that I've been on the other side of people claiming to have a word from God for me in my Christian journey, and it's really hurt me. But I remember God speaking to me about this once and just reminding me that we should never judge a good idea by its abuses. That, in other words, we should never hold ourselves back from the invitation of the Scriptures just because we've experienced it being used poorly by those who claim to follow Jesus. Um, But I mostly just want to say, me too. You know? Like, I've been there. I know that feeling. It's scary and the sense that, oh my gosh, what would this unleash for me to sit before? I don't know. You're cautious. I'd want to say there's a healthy caution you can have with this kind of topic, especially in the gathered church. But that shouldn't hold you back from the invitation. And then the rest of us, we're just curious. You know, maybe you were invited by a friend here this afternoon. You hear the word prophecy, you like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, like Chronicles of Narnia. Who's coming back to sit on the thrones of Care Paravel? You know what I'm saying? But that curiosity is a wonderful innocence. Maybe that curiosity is sort of, it's got this skeptical edge to it. Or maybe it's just got this innocent edge to it. But the curiosity is actually a wonderful place to start because it gives you the opportunity with which to say, let's see, right? Let's see. Let's see what happens. And so um, you start to realize when you read John's letter, I think I'm going to preach over today. Sorry, this is a side note. Just came to me right then. I might not. I'll try not. But anyway, here we are. Um, You start to read John's letter and you realize that to be a mature Christian doesn't just mean to believe the right things about God. It means to disbelieve the wrong things. Which means if you find yourself being overly cautious at the topic of spiritual gifts in the life of the gathered church, or overly keen, I would just say this, that actually the task of the Christian isn't to be sort of naively superstitious and think that everything is a word from God. No way. Neither is it to be sort of cynically suspicious and think that nothing is ever a word from God. It's to believe this, God speaks. Like God speaks. That's it. He speaks and he wants to do it again and again and again. And so that's what we're doing. So where are we going today? First, I want to give us a definition of prophecy. And so here it is. Defining prophecy. I would define prophecy like this. And I stole this definition from a pastor from the States on the West Coast. He says, prophecy is this, hearing God's voice on behalf of an individual or a community. That might be for yourself, for someone you know, or for a community that you're a part of. That's it. Hearing God's voice on behalf of an individual and a community. So here's where we're going this afternoon. We are first going to talk about um, prophecy in the Bible, and then two, prophecy in our lives. And in that latter part, I just want to share a bit of my experience and the experience of close friends whose testimony I trust deeply when we get into that part. So first, prophecy in the Bible. I made the claim before that the major point 
that the New Testament writers assume when they write the New Testament is this, that God speaks. And you see this right through the storyline of the Bible. You go to Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That God speaks by his Spirit. And then moving on, the rest of chapter 1 is God speaking and creation being formed. God speaking and creation being formed. And the Hebrew word there is ruach. We've actually got some Hebrew, sort of budding Hebrew scholars in the room, and they would know it means ruach. And, and the Jews would sort of have three images that come to mind when they heard this word ruach. It would be the breath in our lungs. It'd be the wind in the air, and it'd be the Spirit of God. And the imagery is that when God wants to do something, the Spirit comes. And when the Spirit comes, transformation takes place, creation gets formed. And this is the story of the Bible. The Spirit is central. It comes and does its work. And the sad part about the story, if you know what happens next, is that humanity is damaged by evil. So God creates us in this beautiful project we call creation, the Eden, the Garden of Delight, and gives to humanity this beautiful task of taking the project of creation forward for its flourishing, the blessing of the world, and the glory of God. That's the beautiful picture with which Genesis 1 and 2 opens. And he breathes his spirit in them, gives them life. They're meant to live by the spirit of God, breathe in and out the spirit of God, but then they sin, turn in on themselves, get damaged by evil. And the spirit of God that he gave to each lung of every Every human cut off. We find ourselves banished outside the garden, guarded, and on our way to death. That's the story of humanity. So all humans now find themselves cut off from the Spirit of God, not in a general way, in a very specific way. That God now is removed, veiled, if you will, separate, distant, all because of the problem of sin. You've got creation, you've got fall, and then you've got the story of redemption. See, the beauty of the, the story of the Bible is, is God creates humans for good, they're damaged by evil, but then rather than God make, letting them make their way back to him, he chases. C.S. Lewis called God the hound of heaven. He runs, chases and pursues, and his goal is this, the same thing he did in creation he wants to do in redemption, use his spirit to bring new life to speak new worlds into being and to create new things for himself. And so what does he do? He pours out his spirit again and again and again. Now what I'm doing right now is I'm actually giving us like a bit of a theology, a prophecy. Uh, and the person who helped me do this with such conciseness was the same pastor I quoted from the definition before. His name's Tyler Staten. I probably said that wrong. But I need to reference him because actually he's compiled this so wonderfully. Um, Tyler Staten. And so let, let me just give you his name. If you want to take this further after this sermon, please do so. You'd, you'd be really blessed by this. Um, and so, but what, is, what, is, what does God do next? Well, the experience that the, um, the characters in the Old Testament have of God, of the Spirit, is, is sort of sporadic. It's intentional and particular. It's really extraordinary. An example of that is in Numbers 11, verse 25. Uh, Moses has just come down from the mountain, and he's communicating to people, and rather than he be the sole arbiter through which God speaks, God starts to pour out his Spirit on others. And here's what it says. It says, Then the Lord came, and he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him, Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. They spoke what they heard from God. They spoke in the name of the Lord. But here's the catch at the end of that passage. They did not do so again. They did not do so again. And this sort of catalyzes a pattern 
which echoes throughout the story of the Old Testament, which is this, the Spirit comes in particular ways for particular moments, for particular people, rests. Because of that, people speak in the name of the Lord. And the Spirit either goes or does something else. But that's the picture. It's particular. It's temporal. It's extraordinary. It's a divine moment, not an ongoing thing. That's part one, story of Israel. Part two, Jesus comes. And you move from an era in which the Spirit was particular now into a moment when Jesus, with his disciples in John 20, if you go to the verse, it's right there. Jesus took all of his disciples. And the text simply says, in the same way that the Hebrew mind would think, Spirit, Ruach, breath, wind, Jesus breathes on his disciples, all of them, right there in front of him. He breathes on them. And he says, I promise you the Holy Spirit who will come because of which you will do greater things than I ever did. It's this picture of God breaking into our reality, utilizing people to outwork his kingdom. It's messy, it's slow, it's inefficient, but it's God's plan. That's what he does. And then you fast forward then to the birth of the early church in Acts chapter 2, and you get these people in a prayer meeting in an upper room, and they're sitting there, and it's 10 days um, of just sitting there praying, waiting for the Spirit of God to come, and then boom, the Spirit of God comes. And I just love verse 4. It just says this, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And you think, man, is this unusual? This, was this unplanned? And no, because Peter then goes on to explain what's happening in the crowd. And he says to onlookers who thinks that those who are receiving the Spirit are like drunk or crazy or whatever. And he says, no, this is what the prophet Joel prophesied of old. Joel 2 verses 38 onwards. He says, in those days, I'll pour out my flesh on my spirit on all flesh. And it's this beautiful vision, which gives you this little contrast. You'll see it here on the screen, that in the Old Testament, it's irregular. God's voice is irregular. It's extraordinary, it's particular, and it's the exception, not the rule. That's the picture you get. Because God is, is, is stepping into human history at particular moments to take the story of redemption forward. And then in Jesus, you get this wonderful contrast because of what he's done what he's made access to, and what he, by grace, has poured out through his spirit. This is what you get. You get a perpetual, ongoing presence of the spirit. It becomes ordinary, which sounds weird because we think of it as miraculous and strange and otherworldly. But actually, it becomes ordinary. The spirit of God and the presence of God becomes supernaturally natural, you might say. It becomes for all people, and it becomes the rule, not the exception. Um, I like to put it like this on the next, next slide. The New Testament prescribes as normal what the Old Testament describes as unusual. Why? Because God's done something in Jesus to make the Spirit perpetually available by grace. You don't have to be amazing to experience the power of God through the Spirit. You don't have to be anything special. You don't have to be intellectual. You don't have to be silly. You don't have to check your brain at the door of the church. You don't have to pretend you've got the biggest brain in the church. God uses his spirit to interact with anyone and everyone at whatever time he wants for the gift of his church, the building up of his body, the blessing of the world, the glory of himself. That's the picture. That's the story of prophecy in the Bible. That's the story of God speaking in the story of the Bible, which leads us just to this base little point. We should expect prophecy. We should expect God to speak. We should expect God to speak to us. We should expect God to speak to us as individuals alone in our quiet time. We should expect God to speak to us in this church as we gather as his body. We should expect the spirit of God to come in a way that actually changes us. Isn't us just talking to the ceiling, but actually is God ripping through the ceiling and speaking directly to each of our hearts and lives. 
Now, I'll acknowledge right now that there's a debate to be had here, which we don't have time for, but I'll name the debate, say, come talk to me afterwards, and we'll call it that for this afternoon. The debate's simply this. Does the Spirit of God want to work in an ongoing way similar to that of which the New Testament era experienced, or does it not? And those who would think that the gifts of the Spirit continue today are what we call continuationists, not super creative, right? And those who would think that the Spirit of God stopped working in such miraculous and powerful ways, speaking, gifts of tongues, all those myriad of things we call the gifts of the Spirit, they, we call them cessationists because they cease to believe that that's what the Spirit of God wants to do. Now, as a church, we firmly believe um, in the active gifts of the Spirit. It's actually one of our values, that we're creative in worship, we're adventurous in our faith, we um, adore God in, in these kinds of ways. It's actually part of our makeup as a church. But I've, I've, in my time, we've not spoken into it. And we've not unpacked it. And so you read a passage like 1 John verses 4, verses 1 to 4, and you're like, what is prophecy? And he's denouncing heresy. I want to hold up a positive vision of how we might outwork it here in our midst. So we should expect prophecy. That's prophecy in the biblical story. What about prophecy in our lives? What does prophecy do? What is, let me put it in this in sort of like popular helpful terms. If I hear from God, what will that do for my Christian journey? Now, before I even answer that in what is both my experience and some principles I've found in both in 1 John and 1 Corinthians, let me just say this, thought experiment. What would that do? <laughs> to hear from God. Like, just take a moment, think about that. Like, you know, most of us come to church on a Sunday expecting to hear from God in sort of a detached way. What do I mean? The sermon, <laughs> Right? Like, if you think that every week I can get up here and give you a nice little TED talk and, you know, you might walk away with some nice lessons, that's great. But I actually assume most of us come here expecting God to speak through, you know, my stupidly fast voice, right? And that's, that's not an ego trip for me. That actually means that sometimes I can just care less, right? Um, that's not my bent. I, I, I technically take way too long to prepare a sermon sometimes, just to be straight. But it means that all of us, whether we're a cessationist or a continuationist, we'd walk into church thinking, oh, what, what's God going to teach me today? And so to move from that point where you say, I expect to hear from God through the sermon to maybe I can hear God in prayer. It's not a jump, it's the same thing. It's the same philosophical bedrock. It's the same theological framework. It's the same biblical story. And so what... What does prophecy look like in our lives? I've got four things for us. Number one, prophecy simply points to Jesus. And this is actually the heart of John's passage. That you can tell something true from false if it either points to Jesus or it doesn't. Um, more particularly for John, he was trying to critique the theological innovators who tried to deny the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, which is a core tenet of the Christian faith. But this is a broad principle you find in Paul's letters and in um, this letter from John, that it needs to point to Jesus. Verse 2 says this. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And it's a wonderful, beautiful, simple principle. It's that if anyone comes to you in this life and, you know, maybe they're, they're wearing hemp or they're wearing linen and they're like, I've got a word from the Lord for you. <laughs> and you hear it. Does it take you to Jesus? Does it make you worship him? Does it make you love him? Does it tenderize your heart towards him? If not, throw it away. 
Simple. Easy. Wonderful. Um, does anyone remember those growing up? Because this is John, John's premise, right? You could recognize the voice of God. You just got to sort of tune yourself to it, so to speak. Um, and the tuning fork is set to the tone of Jesus. Does anyone remember growing up the um, antennas you'd have for TVs? Anyone remember this? Yeah, sick. Um, sometimes you're like, I'm getting old, and this would be one of those examples, but the room's with me, so right on. And there's always a broadcast. Channel 10, Channel 7, there's always, Home and Away is always on at 7 p.m. But how do you get Home and Away to that wonderful, glowing, you know, pixelated screen? Tune the antenna. And this is what John's saying. He's like, just tune the antenna. There's a way you can hear God's voice and recognize its beauty. Does it point you to Jesus? If not, man, run the other direction. It's not from him. One, it points us to Jesus. Two, it encourages people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 3 to 4, it puts it so simply. Paul says this. He says, But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. What does this mean? When Kath and I were living in Sydney, we were in a small group, and in this small group, there was someone who started coming. They weren't a Christian, no faith framework, and their name was Lindsay. And Lindsay had um, sort of just been intrigued by the Christian story. She and her housemate lived around the corner from us. We would pick them up. We'd drive to Newtown. So we lived in Randwick. They lived in Coogee. We'd drive to Newtown. And um, every week we'd pick them up, drop them off. And we were just praying for Lindsay. We're like, God, just show up in her life. We would love to see her experience and encounter you in special ways. And one afternoon, she got in the car. And she said, hey, I was walking along the street this afternoon. And I don't even remember what she was doing. She was just walking along, hanging out. And she said, some random stranger came up to me. And she said, hi, I don't know you. This might be weird, but I feel like God is telling me that he loves you and he wants you to know that he loves you. She told us in the car, we celebrated. She told us at small group, we celebrated. And Lindsay's a Christian now. Like, because God encouraged her through the voice of some random stranger who didn't know her story, didn't know her background, didn't know that she was sort of checking Christianity out. God loves you, Lindsay. God loves you. This is what God does with prophecy. This is how God speaks. He encourages us, which is another beautiful litmus test. These first two points can also serve as a test by which you discern the voice of God. Is it Jesus-centered and encouragement-fueled? Simple. If it's not, it's probably not from God. Like, this is the heart of the God who is light and who is love, who's the Father who gives good gifts and by his Spirit wants to speak to his children. Is it Jesus-centered and encouragement-fueled? If it's not, man, talk to a lot of other people about it first. What else does prophecy do? Three, it empowers the church. 1 Corinthians 14 verses 1 and 5 say this. It says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. I would like every one of you, verse 5 says, to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. And then he goes on to sort of compare gifts, which I think only the Apostle Paul can do, if I'm honest. Um, but this is a wonderful thing. Like, I think in the modern church, we've sort of got this unhelpful fascination with the preached word, which is great. I'm, I love sermons. I, I preach them, right? And we come to church expecting this sort of, like, guy at the front or girl at the front to sort of unpack the voice of God for us. And that's wonderful. We've got theological reason to do so. We believe that God speaks and he puts people aside through whom he can preach his word. That's a good thing. But here's the risk we run, 
if that's all we expect from the gathered church on a Sunday. The risk we run is thinking that there's a few professional Christians that God has got on his elite squad that we come to watch. And anyone who's read the Bible would know that Christianity is just not a spectator sport. That actually God does something in and through a surrendered life that just wants to be used. Which means that everyone can participate on a Sunday. That doesn't mean we're going to lose our form, so to speak. God's a God of order, not chaos. But it does mean within that form there's a new kind of life which actually sees all of us using our gifts. Now, we, our framework for that extends not just simply to the miraculous and the sort of, you know, um, the gifts of the Spirit. Like, our framework for that extends to what we do, you know, welcoming people to church and giving people a, 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 like, taking kids to kids' life. And, you know, the Spirit of God works in that way, too. It's all part of him using his body for that kind of thing. But, man, imagine if each of us walked to church and we got in here and we are like, I wonder if God wants to encourage someone through me today. Like, just Imagine. A sermon you can sort of sit back with your arms folded and think, hmm, that was pretty good today. (laughs) But when someone says, hey, I think God would have you consider this, does it resonate? I've got a picture from God. Does it speak to you? Sure, there's some discerning to do, but your arms aren't crossed. It's different. God would equip and empower his church because there's no star players. That's what prophecy does. When you open yourself to the prophetic, to God's voice being spoken in and through you, that's what would happen. The church would be empowered in new and wonderful ways. And finally, and this is what I think is most personal, particularly to me, is it develops intimacy. John 10 verse 27 says this, that my sheep, Jesus is speaking, my sheep listen to my voice. That's Jesus' claim. And the whole argument I've been making is not that God's not speaking, but we need to learn to recognize what could indeed be the voice of God. Jesus simply says, my sheep listen to my voice. Um, When I was living in the UK, we had someone who came and um, he had a reputation for being a prophet and he spoke to our entire cohort. Um, To understand the story I unpack next just as briefly as I can, there's a few things you need to know. One... The room wasn't filled with people who would sort of be those you think check their brain out at the door. One of my colleagues at the time, um, actually still is, is a professor of philosophy at the University of Oxford. Um, another number of other friends of mine in the room, one of them had a teaching post in ethics at the university. Um, and so just to get a sense of the room, it's not people who are just like wildly superstitious and naively optimistic that God can speak and they don't need their brain to discern. It's not that, that's not the room. It was a wonderfully diverse group of people, many of whom had PhDs and were curious as to whether God could speak. This guy came. That's the first thing you need to know. The second thing you need to know is the definition of two words. They'll be on the screen behind me. Theology and theophany. Theology is, let me, a simple way to put it is just thoughts about God. Theology is study of God. Um, and the other word is theophany, um, which is, I think it's taken from the Latin, And it just means encounter with God. There's these parts in the story of the Bible where God turns up and you're like, oh, that's God. And theologians call them theophanies. God rocks up, encounters his people, theophanies. So this prophet comes along. And some of you know my story, right? I was really good at reading the Bible as like a checklist and to-do list. I'd spent years studying the scriptures and I'd gotten to the point where, yeah, sure, man, I, I actually reckon I can talk about this Jesus guy pretty, pretty articulately, and that's really helpful for people, and, and I had a good theology. 
but there's something in my experiential encounter of God that kind of lacked, just if I'm honest. This guy comes along and he starts speaking and he singles me out in the crowd, the cohort of people. And he says, Alex, I think God would want to say to you this, that you've got a great theology, but he wants to work on your theophany. And he's been working on it since. And what that did for my life, like it changed the goal for me. You know what I mean? Like I can talk about God to the cows come home, but I want to know him. You know? I can rattle off answers to questions about spiritual gifts until I'm blue in the face, but like I want to experience the spirit of God. I can read the scriptures day in, day out. Really good at it. But man, I want to hear God's voice through it now. He had no idea about me. I think it was God. And this is what God does. Imagine if I said to my wife, hey babe, we're married now, all good. Um, I just, I think I'm going to stop speaking to you though. And like, just, just watch the intimacy flow. They wouldn't. Why? Because conversation is so fundamental to intimacy. Now, if you've tried prayer, wait till you see prophecy. This is what God was speaking to us about when we were on holidays. My hope is that you felt like we've unpacked the big idea of the text, but that we've done a bit more this afternoon. Ultimately, it's this, that there's an invitation for us as a church. An invitation to experience God speaking, to hear his voice, not just for us as individuals, but for the community in and through us. Um, I love the way Tyler put it. He says, Christians should have beliefs that are founded on scripture, but shaped by prophecy. Lives that are shaped by prophecy. This sense that, man, if I was to explain what I believe, this library right here, but if I was to explain why I am who I am today, God spoke. I listened. I obeyed. Lives, beliefs, all wrapped up together. Paul would simply say this in 1 Corinthians 14. Two slides ahead, sorry. Thanks, Chelsea. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. That's what Paul would say. And God might speak through that to you right now. My hope is that he is. Eagerly desire to hear God's voice directly through one another. Sometimes we don't want this and I think it's because we, we like to curate our experience of God. You know, God, you can have this part of my life, not this. God, this far, but not this far. We want control. Later in the year as a church, we're going to... Um, we're going to have Mike Pilavachi over and he's, got a, he's going to teach to us about the supernatural experience of God and the gifts of the Spirit and all that kind of stuff. But he's got this wonderful phrase, one slide back, thanks Chelsea. He says it like this, that it's neat and tidy in the graveyard, but it's messy in the nursery. Then when we talk about experience, the gifts of the Spirit as a church, we're not talking about giving away order, not at all. We're talking about finding God and the life of the Spirit in the order that we give ourselves to, which can change over time too, by the way. It's fun. We did it recently when we changed the way we do our worship sets. Um, and so I just want to invite us to respond right now. And I want to ask you, on the back end of Paul's instruction in verse 1 of Corinthians 14, 
do you eagerly desire? I asked you to imagine before, imagine hearing from God. Imagine normalizing it, not so that people think you're weird, but so that there's this sense of discernment and recognition of God's voice in your life. If we believe in a God we can pray to, flip, it's probably weirder to not believe that he doesn't speak. <laughs> and that's the biblical story. And so I just want to invite us to respond. And there's two ways we're going to do that this afternoon. One is by standing, which I'll invite us to do in a moment. But the other way is I've actually got some people in the room who um, actually through whom God's spoken into my life, um, prepared to pray for us. Um, and so we just invite you. There'll be four of us, four teams of people stationed around the room two teams up the front, one up the back, and one up on the mezzanine floor. And if you would like to just surrender to God in this way, maybe even hear something in and through those that are set aside to pray, hear God speak, just encourage you to come forward in this next worship set. Um, they'll pray for you. They won't do anything that you're not comfortable with. They'll talk to you along the way. And it'll be a wonderful, safe and sensitive space that you can engage, actually to see whether God might say something encourage you and point you to Jesus and so I'd encourage you to do that when that time's available but in the meantime I just want to ask us as a church do we eagerly desire this do we let, come on like let me let me ask it in this way like with the less solemn tone and be like this right like man do we want this you know what I mean we're not going to bless our city if the spirit doesn't come in power we're not nothing's going to change in this world but imagine and so I just invite us if, if this is something you would to use the words of Paul eagerly desire just invite you to stand where you are so if that's you please stand And if this, something, if this is something that maybe you wouldn't say, yeah, I eagerly desire it, but I feebly desire it, desire it, then I invite you to stand as well. It actually seems as if the whole room's standing, just to narrate that for a second. I want to pray for us as a church. As I begin to pray, can the prayer team just find themselves in their stations? They'll be wearing these lanyards. And um, so down the front with me will be Kath. Liz and May Lee. Down the back will be Dylan and Lauren and upstairs will be Sandra and Morris. If you want to respond to God in prayer, even just have someone pray for you, come forward. But in the meantime, just with our eyes closed, let me pray for us as a church. Father, we pray that ancient prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to us. If you never said another word, God, that's fine. You've given us a library of scripture which testifies to your beauty. But we know you want this. Your word tells us. Father, I want to pray for us as a church as we gather on a Sunday. Lord, stop us being spectators, myself included. 
Lord, stop us being from professional Christians who can curate our Sunday experience. Let us be by your spirit coming in power, people set apart, encountering you, experiencing you, having you commune and communicate directly to us because that's what your spirit does. Father, we don't want to settle. We don't want to find ourselves in a year's time, in two years' time, asking the same thing because we didn't give our hearts and bodies and lives over to it. Lord, we just surrender right now. We give you absolute permission. Friends, if you want to give God permission, I just feel him encouraging us just to open our hands. This is in a sign of surrender. Lord, we just we give you permission to speak to us, to move in us, that our prayers wouldn't just be us speaking, but would us be interacting with our Heavenly Father. So Spirit, come, we pray. I just feel inclined to pray for those in the room who, um, who might have had a bad experience in this, in the past. And I feel like God would say to you as he has to me that he leads us with cords of love as he writes in Hosea, with strings of kindness that is the ultimate gentleman, but also the wonderful inviter. And he would say, come as much as you're able, maybe risk a bit on the way. But he won't let you down. Lord, I pray for those in the room who are cautious. I ask God, give them boldness and courage and tenderness to take you at your word and surrender their heart to your voice. Lord, we just give you our hearts right now. In Jesus' name.